0: I invite you to remain standing for our scripture reading. We'll be reading from the book of Galatians, chapter 2. Let's read God's good word together. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up in response to a revelation. Then I laid before them, though only in a private meeting with the acknowledged leaders, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Maybe of you have things that you they're like hobbies, but they 're not actually things that you 've done like it's something you want to be a hobby it 's like an aspirational hobby. like I want to be the kind of person who does that that 's kind of in our family that 's kind of how we are around camping like we we 've bought a bunch of stuff. We want to be the kind of people who go out and sleep in the wilderness and tents, and uh, and uh, you know mostly whenever we do, it looks like this. I don't know if you can see the fence in the backyard, but uh, but that is uh, the last spring my daughter Elsie and I camped in the backyard, and, and unfortunately that's about as wild as as we get. But you know I, even if the 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 location was not that uh, not that wild, you can see that that we still managed to get a very nice pitch on the tent, right? And it's hard to see in the photo, but, but it was windy being Oklahoma. And, and so we have the guy lines set up. I, um, I, I know what a guy line is. And, uh, and whenever that happened, I, I noticed we, we set up the tent without them. And it's like, okay, this is going to blow over and it would be very bad. And, uh, and so what did I do? I looked up on YouTube how to tie a guy line. I, I now know how to tie a bowline knot. And you can tell that I'm legit because I didn't call it a bowline, which if you want to sound like you know what you're talking about with knots, don't call it, it's a bowline. So anyway, I don't know why, but that's what they said on YouTube. So, so I have all this knowledge. Anyway, so you can see us, we had a good night, about 18 blankets, and, um, and it was good. Uh, we had a good time camping, and, but so... So you know, now that we are accomplished camping people who have braved the wilds, we've done things like you know we can't. Whenever we, ha- if you have to go to the bathroom in the tent, you have to get up, and you have to go outside, and then you have to go back inside. I mean, you're you're entering into multiple environments. I mean, but but you know that's the sacrifices you make to rough it. And so 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 we've accomplished this, and I'm thinking, you know, what's my next step to continue into this hobby? Well, you know, one of the things that I like to try is backpacking and so that's there may be a few steps in between backyard camping and backpacking but you know i'm just going to go all the way in but you know the problem my, my tent it's really big it's a four person tent it's pretty heavy it's like nine pounds and, and so if you're having to carry everything on your back uh, on your back you know you want something smaller and so I'm thinking, you know first step i've got to get a backpacking tent and so I've looked around, you know, I looked at REI, what are, the, what are the kind of things that they had. And then I started looking, I don't know if you all have ever been here before, I started looking on Reddit. And, uh, and Reddit, if you don't know, it's like a, an online forum for everything that you could ever think of. And then like 10 times as many other things. And there are people who have opinions about things that you didn't even know that you could have an opinion about. It's it's pretty fascinating. And so I was finding out all these things about backpacking and how, yeah, you can get all these backpacking tents. But if you're really legit, you will do ultralight backpacking where you try to get like your tent, your backpack and all of your clothes to be like 15 pounds or less. Do so you have more room for food and water and that kind of stuff. And you can move quickly without being encumbered. And I, actually, I also learned that if you want stuff to be really light, you have to pay a lot. And so there, there's actually a, an inverse correlation between cost and mass. And so uh, I, I'm learning so much. And, uh, and people are really serious about getting their weight down. So like if, if you're really hardcore, you'll cut off the end of your toothbrush because you, you just need the bristles. And so how, like how many grams does that save? At least 10. I don't know. I never weighed a toothbrush. And uh, so I know now that, that all of these things about backpacking tents that, that I can... That if you, you, know, if you want one, that uh, if you want to not double up on weight and you use trekking poles that they make them that actually your trekking poles are also your tent poles. And so, I mean, all of this stuff, really fascinating. I could pick out, I mean, I could tell you about eight different brands and and the pluses and minuses about them. There's also a question, though, that that I'm trying not really to think about, and, and it's, Brandon, maybe before you buy a backpacking tent, you should go backpacking to see if you like it right and particularly before you invest in an ultralight backpack because like it's you're not going to the appalachian trail for your first time right you're gonna do two nights at lake arcadia and uh, in the back country and uh, anyway so you know but But maybe you've been there, you get excited about something and you just kind of dive in and you find out all the information that you can find out about and, oh my goodness, you can get this or you can get this or you can do this or this and and all those things. You find out all of these facts, but uh, you know, all the facts and all the information, they don't necessarily get you to wisdom. And so you can figure out all the information that you need, but you may not get to the point of actually discerning, you know, is is this a decision that I actually need to be making? Like, maybe for me, which backpacking tent do I want to buy is not the question that needs to be asked. And, And we find this whenever we're trying to make important decisions. We can get all of the information that's out there, but it doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to have the wisdom to be able to use that information well. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going through a sermon series called Ancient Wisdom for Anxious Times, and we're going through the book of Galatians. And there's a lot that we can learn about making decisions, and, and Paul, as he's writing this, actually gives us some examples of that, of how he did that in his own life. And so, oh, I thought that was the slide that I meant to be on. Ancient Wisdom for Anxious Times, not uh, me and my daughter. That, that, that wasn't too anxious, except I was kind of worried that she was going to get cold. She was fine. I was, I was colder than she was. But, so, but that's what we're looking at, the book of Galatians. And last week, we started um, really just kind of with some background on the book of Galatians. And so um, if, if you know the Apostle Paul, he, he was somebody who, who first persecuted people who were followers of Jesus. He thought they were not keeping the, the traditions of his people, the Jewish people, in the right way, that this was a, a dangerous group within, within Judaism. And so he persecuted them. And, and, and then Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus as he was going to try to arrest Jesus' followers and and uh, his whole life got turned upside down. He actually began um, encouraging people to follow Jesus. And so he would go around, he would start churches, and travel from place to place, and, uh, and then afterward, he would write letters back to them. And, and so this is where we get much of the New Testament. The letters of Paul come from those letters that he wrote to churches. And so in these letters, he, he would write back to them, he would encourage them, he would continue to teach them, and he would also correct them. If they got off path, um, he, he would help them know how to get back on. A lot of what's in Galatians is correction, because he didn't think what was going on was what needed to be going on. And so you can see a map here um, of what that looks like. Uh, right here in the center is where the region of Galatia is. It's not a city; it was a it was a region, a Roman province. And uh, and so some of the cities that you read about in the Book of Acts, Lystra, Iconium, Derbe, those are um, cities that are in Galatia, in that region. And so whenever he's writing this letter, it's not just to one group of people, but it's a collection of churches in a region. And uh, the situation that prompted this particular letter was that after Paul had left, after he started the church and le- after he started those churches and left, that rival missionaries had come, they were traveling around the different cities, and they were insisting that the Galatian Christians, that the followers of Jesus, and particularly the ones who were, who were Gentiles, who are not Jewish, that they follow Jewish dietary laws and practice circumcision. It was basically saying, okay, well, all those things Paul told you were true, but he left some things out. If you really want to follow Jesus, you need to do these things as well. That's how you can be really faithful. And Paul was really concerned about that, because for what he saw was that if if they were forced to do those things, their life in Christ, their, their salvation became about what they had done and not about what God had done. And so he was really concerned about that and, and wrote to them about it. And, and the way that he did that, the way that he kind of taught them, told them about what was going on was he talked to them about where his authority came from, the source of the gospel that he taught. Um, he, he was, Paul was not teaching something that he came up with, that he just invented one day, but something that was revealed to him. And so this is what he says in Galatians chapter 1. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was proclaimed by me is not of human origin, for I did not receive it from a human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so he appeals to to the authority of the one who gave him the teaching, and he's saying basically, like, they're appealing to, to, you know, the tradition that's been handed on to them. What I've taught you, I received directly from Christ. Uh, It's not handed on to me from any any tradition, not any person, any particular tradition. And and traditions are a good thing. Um, They help us um, to celebrate and to experience things that really matter. But sometimes we get things out of order, and that's what Paul saw was going on here. Like the traditions that have been handed down through um, through his faith community, through the Jewish people were important. But he saw in this situation they were putting those traditions above what God was doing in Christ in welcoming new people and welcoming the Gentiles into the faith. And here this is a problem that we run into sometimes too when we place tradition above the reason for the tradition we've created an idol in this case whenever we place these traditions these dietary laws and the practice of circumcision whenever you place that above what god is actually doing in the world trying to bring new people into the family of god that's putting the cart before the horse that's creating an idol that's saying our traditions that that we like are more important than what god is actually wanting to do right now and you're basically saying sorry god we know better like you said this a long time ago and we've got it figured out And so we run into that trouble, too, whenever we're, you know, in our families, whenever we do things like family dinner or holiday meals, and, you know, you've got some people in your family, maybe you're the one who, like, everything has to be exactly right, and this is our tradition, and we do it that way every year, and if it's not right, like, no one else gets to have fun, they're going to make sure that, like, no, we do not do it that way, you can't, that is not the tradition, right? And if you end up alienating your family because you're trying to properly keep a family tradition, that's backwards. Because it's not about the tradition. It's about your family. And that's what we do whenever we put traditions above the, their reason for existence. We're creating an idol. We're getting things backward. And and so that's what Paul is that's what Paul's getting at throughout all of this. And and the reason that he can say that is because what, of what Christ has revealed to him. And you know, we see things like we see people like the Apostle Paul, and we think, okay, yeah, Christ spoke to him. That's some that's great for him. That doesn't really happen to people like us. But we can actually learn to hear the Holy Spirit's leading in our daily lives. We can actually hear from God in our daily lives. That's not just, I mean, probably we won't have an experience where we're riding on a donkey to Damascus. Like that in itself is unlikely, but where we're knocked off because we, we have this encounter with Jesus and he says, why are you persecuting me? I mean, I hope you're not persecuting Jesus. Like that's, that's step one um, on this path of following him. But th- it may not happen in that way, but we can still in, in our daily lives learn to hear from the Holy Spirit. And so that's what we talked about last week. And one of the things that gets in the way whenever we're trying to hear from God, one of the things that that makes that more difficult is just the amount of noise that we have to contend with, all all of the the inputs that we have, all of the distractions that we have, and sometimes just the fact that we're drowning in data, in information, we're we're almost drowning in it. And uh, people encounter and consume more information, you know, in, in a year than our ancestors did in a lifetime and uh, and some people would say it's it's a lot less it's a lot less than a year one bbc report said that it's estimated that people uh, in a day consume more information than a 15th century person would have in their entire life and then I, I read a Reddit thread about that particular claim, <laughs> and uh, apparently it's problematic the way that they quantified data, and I was like, okay, so I think this is embodying we have too much information on our hands right now. And you know, it's wonderful, it's great that we have access to that information, that can be really helpful. I mean, whenever we were trying, whenever we moved to Edmond and we're trying to find a house here, it was nice that we could find on the internet, like all the houses that were on the market, but, uh, but if we only have information that doesn't help us to get where we need to go. You know, one of, the, one of the things about being alive now that wasn't true, you know, 20, 25 years ago is we no longer have to wonder about matters of fact. We don't have to wonder about them because, I mean, instantly you just look it up. And so if you're driving around, you're like, you know, who is was the actor who played Smalls in The Sandlot? Like, you don't have to wonder. Somebody, before you even finish the sentence, somebody already looked up on IMDb and they're like, oh, yeah, that's Tom Guiry. And like, duh, you didn't know that. And, and, and I mean, like, three of you have already Googled that since, like, before I finished that sentence because you wanted to figure it out. Like, that, that wasn't a thing before this generation and yet now, like, there's no barrier between us and information, and that's great. I mean, it, there are a lot of things that are really good about that. Information is helpful, but when we're making important decisions, we need wisdom more than we need knowledge. I mean, whenever you're trying to figure out which, back, which backpacking tent to buy, you need the question of, do you need to buy a backpacking tent before you decide which one? And while information is more abundant than ever, wisdom is still hard to find, And in fact, it's easier for it to get buried in all the information and uh, stuff that's masquerading as wisdom that's really not wise. And here's where we end up. If we rely on data to make our decisions, if we rely only on data, we will not know whether we're even asking the right questions, right? I mean, you just skip to that. It's like, let me gather all the information and figure out what I'm going to do. Like, is this a question that is worth asking? Like, that's the part that we miss, And so we need wisdom, and this is where Paul helps us, because he he outlines, as he's outlining the source of his gospel and how he got where he was for the Galatian church, he talks about his discernment process, how he discerned the wisdom that had been handed to him. And and so discernment is the way that we talk about the practice of seeking God's guidance and and testing insights, known as discernment in the Christian tradition. I mean, you've heard that word in other um, in other settings as well. But, but that's where Paul needed to go. That's what he needed after his meeting with Jesus. A- after he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, he, he needed to discern, how do I respond to this? like I thought my life was all about getting rid of these people who are not keeping our traditions properly and then the guy that I thought was dead suddenly started talking to me like he shouldn't be able to do that and uh, I suddenly have to rethink my life choices and so that's where Paul found himself he had to figure that out and and discern okay God like reality is not what I thought it was what do I do next how do I figure this out And so, as we saw last week, he spent some time in Arabia. He doesn't say a lot about that. We think he may have gone out into the desert, um, into the place that we're um, looking for, Mount Sinai, to kind of um, seek God's guidance as, as Moses and Elijah did and uh, to try to figure things out from there. But then later on, he, he went to human sources to confirm what he had experienced. And so 14 years after his initial experience on the, Galat- on the road to Damascus, Paul consulted with Peter, with James, the brother of Jesus, and with John, John the disciple, um, the author of the Gospel of John. And, and so this is what, how he describes it in Galatians 2. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up in response to a revelation. Again, the revelation of Christ that came directly to him. Then I laid before them, though only in a private meeting with the acknowledged leaders, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. And so 14 years later, he had received this from God. He had done the work of, of figuring out, you know, how do I respond to this? How do I live differently? And 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 discern god calling him to go to the gentiles to people who are not jewish to tell them about jesus and invite them to follow him and but he still wanted to make sure he wanted to make sure that he was not running in vain that that all the work that he was doing was not happening in vain And so he went to to consult with people who knew um with people who had you know they were roughly contemporaries you know maybe um a few decades apart but uh, but were people who were not significantly older than him but they had more experience they had actually walked with jesus And so Jesus had spoken to him, but he wanted to confirm with Jesus' other followers as well. And so he went and consulted with them and and models for us what we can do whenever we're trying to make important decisions, whenever we're trying to discern. Uh, Whenever we're discerning, we can seek out people who know Jesus well. You know, sometimes we're tempted whenever we've got a decision to make. We want to consult with people who are going to tell us what we want to hear, right? I mean, like, yes, I, 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 I have this decision to make. This is the outcome I want. Like, which one of my friends or family members is going to tell me to do this? You know, have you ever done that? We we have people, or we have people, you know, who, who are in kind of who, who think the same way we do, and we and we, so we decide, you know, I'm going to ask them because I think they're going to tell me what what I want to hear instead of saying, you know, who is someone who's actually who who's wise. Who follows Jesus, who knows him well, and might be able to see things that I can't see. Often we, we go for the people who are easy or, or who are going to tell us what we want. And I think this insight from Elaine Heath, she's the former dean of Duke Divinity School, um, I think this is really helpful, particularly in the, in the hyper-polarized culture that we find ourselves in. She says, the best spiritual companions for times like these are saints who do not fit well into anyone's theological box and casually defy labels such as conservative or liberal. I think one of the things that we fall into is it's really easy for us just to talk to people who already think like we do. Like, I know that they agree with me on stuff, and so I'm going to talk to them. Instead of seeking out people who are wise, who who may not see things like we do, but have a wisdom that is greater than our own. And it's so easy for us just to get stuck in our own individual echo chambers, like, you know, just talk to people who think the exact same way that we do, and, and we never see a different perspective. And particularly if it's an important decision... We need perspectives other than the ones that we already have. We need wisdom that is beyond what we possess ourselves. You know, one of the sources of wisdom in our, in our culture and in our world that we most take for granted, I think, is the wisdom of elders. We too easily dismiss the wisdom of elders today. We have such a bias toward novelty, toward things that are cutting edge, and it's like you know, I mean, half the time, whenever they try to text message me, they accidentally send me a voice recording, and is this really someone I want to ask? But, but you know, regardless of your facility with technology, I mean, if you've lived through the Great Depression, you know stuff that, like, you've understood things, you have wisdom that, that somebody who's in my generation, who's a millennial, like, that we can't access. I mean, we just don't have the experience to be able to help that. And yet, we, we pass over people because we think, oh, they don't really understand, and yet we have this beautiful resource in the people who have more experience than we do. Now, of course, there's work you have to, be, to do to be a wise elder, right? I mean, just being older doesn't necessarily make you wiser. You've met those people as well. But, but with more experience comes more opportunities to grow and experience wisdom as well. And so that's what Paul does. He seeks out people who have more experience with Jesus than he does, and he consults with them. And these pillars of the church, that's how he refers to them, they affirm Paul's teaching of the gospel and his call to share it with the Gentiles. And so this is, uh, this is how he describes their meeting. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, that is the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel for the circumcised, so Peter was trusted for the gospel, sharing it with the Jewish people. For he who worked through Peter, that's Jesus, making him an apostle to the circumcised, also worked through me in sending me to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, that's uh, Peter um, in, in Aramaic, Cephas, James and Peter and John, who were acknowledged pillars, recognized the grace that had been given to me. They gave to Barnabas and me the right hand, a fellowship, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And so Paul reached out to consult to say, "Here's what I've been teaching. Here's how I've discerned God's call. Um, You know, you've spent more time you spent more time with Jesus when he was on earth than I did, um, which was none for Paul. And uh, you know, basically, is this? Am I hearing this correctly?" And they see that. So he had affirmation, and it was from a trusted source, people who were wise, who knew Jesus well. And so that's where Paul sought, that's how he sought wisdom whenever he was trying to discern something important. But it's also interesting that whenever he, he sought them out, he, he obviously valued their opinion, he valued their wisdom, but he didn't necessarily just give them a blank check. He actually, there were times later on whenever he, he dissented from them. And so he also helps us to know, you know, how do I learn to, how do I learn to discern when I should dissent? And so his respect for the pillars of the church, as he called them, it didn't lead him to unquestioning acceptance. And, uh, and so this is, there, there was an encounter that Paul had with Peter whenever they were in Antioch together in Syria. And uh, this is how he describes that. He said, when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Paul was not like a subtle guy. He wasn't like, here's something you might want to think about. He he opposed Peter to his face because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. And so in this community in Antioch, there were, there were people who were followers of Jesus. Some, had, some were um, Jewish, and some were not. They'd come from different backgrounds, and they would share in meals together. They would eat together, and Peter used to eat with everybody. But then another group came, what Paul refers to as the circumcision faction. That's another name for the, the rival missionaries that we were talking about earlier. They come and basically say, like, look, you all need to separate this this is, you know, this is not good. And so Peter listened, and he went and stopped eating with Gentiles to eat separately. And, uh, and he, as an influential person, whenever he, he makes a decision like that, like if you're a leader, you know your decisions have an effect on others as well. And, and so it, it came down to others as well. And, and this is what happened. The other Jews joined Peter in this hypocrisy so that even Barnabas, Paul's partner, was led astray by their hypocrisy. And so you have this situation where people from different backgrounds are eating together, and Peter decides, I can't do this anymore because I'm getting pressure from another group. And so Peter and the the Jewish Christians stop eating with the Gentiles because of social pressure. And uh, and where this probably came from, you know, that, um, that in the Jewish law, if you read through the Old Testament, the books of the law, there are dietary laws um, that are required. You know, there are certain things that you can't eat. Um, you know, things like shellfish are, are not kosher, so uh, you can't eat those if you're following those laws. And, but there's no commandment not that Gentiles and Jews can't eat together. Um, but, but likely, so likely where that came from was out of the experience of Jewish people. I mean, for one thing, it, it probably makes things a little bit easier. Like, you don't have to ask about every single dish. Like, okay, is, is this one kosher? Is you know, kind of like, all right, is this one gluten-free? Is this one keto? And I'm pescatarian, so is this, can I, it, I mean, some of that may have been at play. But part of it was also, these are people who had been conquered by the Greek Empire and later the Roman Empire, and, and there were, there were significant efforts to try to get Jewish religious practice more in line with the Greco-Roman um, religion. And so they really were trying to protect their faith and to keep it from influences that would lead them away from God's will from them. And so separating at mealtime may have been part of that. Like, you know, if we, if we sit next to those people, they might lead us astray. And, and so I think that's what go- was going on. And, and you can understand how they might have gotten there. But what Paul saw whenever he saw this, whenever he saw people separating, was that Peter's refusal to eat together with Gentiles and Jews together was inconsistent with the gospel. And, uh, and so he opposed him to his face. And, and, and this is what uh, Paul says about that. When... when when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? And so basically he's like, so Peter, like last week, whenever we had dinner, you were eating with everyone, and now you're like over here and keeping yourself pure and making sure that you're separated from the Gentiles, and, and, and essentially you're compelling them to also follow the same laws that you are, Right. I and mean, because otherwise, you're at like the lower table. Like uh, the Gentiles, oh yeah, you are welcome. Come sit over here. But if you want to sit with Peter, like there's some additional rules you have to follow. And so essentially, you know, whenever you're setting that up, it's like if you don't want to be second-class Christians, you need to follow these as well. By, by refusing to eat with the Gentiles, Peter was effectively compelling them to follow those laws. And and yet what, what Paul says is, is that, you know, it's not about what laws we follow, what traditions we follow. What it's actually about is Jesus' death and resurrection because that brought Jews and Gentiles into right relationship with God. And so there's no basis for separation. It's not about whether or not you keep kosher. It's not about whether or not um, you're circumcised. It's not about you know what, who your ancestors are, whether or not you can trace your lineage back to Abraham or not. What it's actually about with this new reality, this new community of the church is all about, is what Jesus Christ has done, and not anything that we do, not anything that those people have done. And, and so that's what it's all about. And any attempt to separate that is basically to say, look, I, I know Jesus died for all of us, but, but what actually counts is, is whether or not you will eat this. And if you will eat it, you can't sit with us. He's, he's taking, I mean, again, he's taking a, a tradition and putting it above what God has done. He's creating an idol, and so this is what Paul says. If you're following along, there, there's a um, Paul and, um, and Paul's talking to Peter. And, and there's an end quote on, I think it's verse 14. A lot of scholars actually think that the quotation goes all the way to the end of the chapter to verse 21. And so um, for, for the entire rest of the, the scriptures that we'll look at, Peter Paul is talking to Peter. But it's also kind of like, you know, sometimes like you're saying something to this person, but you're actually talking to this person. Like, I think that's parenting with multiple kids. But um, but you know you're, you're saying something for their benefit, and and so that's kind of what's going on. Pete, Paul is is remembering he he's reconstructing his conversation with Peter for the benefit of the Galatians because it applies to the situation that they're in. And so this is what he said. He's he's talking to Peter. He says we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet knowing that a person is rectified, and in a lot of translations that's justified, is is brought into right relationship with God. Knowing that a person is is rectified not by observance of the law, but through Jesus Christ's faithful death for our sake, even we have trusted in Christ Jesus in order that we might be rectified through the faithfulness of Christ and not through observance of the law. And, and so what saying, this is a, a translation, kind of a paraphrase by um, Dr. Richard Hayes, uh, what he's saying is that for, for Paul and Peter, they're people who have grown up in the Jewish faith, who have grown up in that tradition, who had the advantage of being part of the covenant people from their birth, And of having the law and all the advantages that come with it, they're not like people who are Gentile sinners, which is kind of how they were regarded by Jews um, at that time. And yet even them, knowing that a person is justified, is brought into right relationship through what Christ has done, even we, people who are not Gentile sinners, have trusted in Christ Jesus. And, and so basically, it's, it's not about our background, it's not about our following the law. Even we have trusted him because we know that it's through his death for our sake that we're brought into right relationship with God, and it's not through observance of the law. And, and this is really the, the core of Paul's message throughout Galatians. We are saved by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and nothing else. It, it's not what we do, it's all about what he has done. It's not about who our ancestors are. It's not about what practices we have, what, what we eat. It's all about what Christ has done. And so because of that, because he, he had received this from Christ, because this is the gospel that he taught, he, he knew to oppose Peter because Peter was doing something that was inconsistent with the gospel. He is basically discerning on the basis of his experience with Jesus. And so that's, that's the experience that Paul has and, uh, and, and models that for us as well, that whenever we're making decisions, we don't just look. We, we seek counsel from other people who know Jesus well, but we also go to the source. I mean, it, it is pretty simple, but, you know, if you grew up at the same time I did, whenever you were in junior high or high school, you had a, a bracelet, and it said WWJD on it, like, what would Jesus do? And uh, that's a good question. Also, like, it helps to know, like, what Jesus did do in order to answer that question. And so what did Jesus do? What did Jesus say that can help us to discern? And and so this is what Paul talks about. He says, basically, as he's discerning, as he's using his experience with Christ to to discern this, he he looks back to his life before Christ. And, And so through his experience with Jesus, Paul died to his old life to live a new life in Christ. And that's what he says here. For through the law, I died to the law, so that, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And so what Paul is saying, basically this guy who used to go around and throw Christians into prison, who would just kind of look on with approval as they were killed for following Jesus, like that guy is dead. I'm not him anymore, and I've become a new person. I have risen with Christ as this person who stands before you now, and who follows Christ and who is his biggest advocate and invites you to follow him too. He he has a new life in Christ. And so he concludes, the life I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Because in, in all of this, what matters most is not, you know, our faithfulness, is not how well we keep the commandments or, or even the way we live. What's most important is Christ's love for us, a love that gave himself for us. And so whenever we're making those decisions as we're trying to figure out where we go, the, the life and teaching of Jesus are our clearest guide in our discernment. And so how do we get to that? By, by reading the scriptures. Paul, Paul experienced him in that powerful way. We, we have his testimony along with the testimony of the other apostles in the scriptures. And so we read the gospels. We read about the things that Jesus did and the things that he taught. We also read about the, the other faithful people who have followed Christ and, and the people who came before him who foretold his coming and who followed God, the, the witness of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. We seek out the wisdom of scripture. And this is something that we practice as United Methodists. Um, we follow something called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral, which, which we use because it sounds really cool to use a $5 word um, whenever we're talking about discernment. But, uh, but so John Wesley is the founder of Methodism. His method of discernment includes Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. And so we consult the Scriptures whenever we're trying to discern things. We read the Bible what God says there. We, we consult the tradition, which, which helps us to know, you know, what, what has the church taught um, how has the church understood this? We, we use our reason. God doesn't just ask us to, to check our brains at the door and set them aside. And we use the experience that we have uh, of God's guidance and, uh, within us. But what's well, primary is Scripture, is, is the actual witness that's been handed down to us. And, and so, you know, we may reason our way to something, but if it's not consistent with Scripture, as we're discerning, that's, that's really what we stick with. And, and so those other things guide the way that we interpret Scripture, and we also recognize that that our interpretations are just that, they're interpretations, but ultimately that's our source of authority because that's the revelation that God has given to us. And one of the things that we see as we go through, as we read the Scriptures, as we discern, is, is I think what, what helped Paul land where he did whenever he was trying to figure this out, like, who gets to eat with whom, and who gets to sit at which table, and how many tables are there, and all of those kinds of things, is I think you know, one of the things that we see clearly throughout the life and ministry of Jesus is his concern for people who are left out, who are excluded, and who are poor. And so whenever he sees people who, because of their background, because of their heritage, are made to sit at, you know, at the kids' table and not invited to sit with everybody else, he's like, no, that's not consistent with the Jesus I know. Because the Jesus that he knew is the same one who said this uh, after his baptism and time in the desert. He said his first sermon whenever he came out of the desert in the synagogue was, "...the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to whom? To the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." And so the, the other thing that we have to keep in mind as we're discerning with Jesus is Jesus has a particular concern for people who are downtrodden, who are left out, and who are hurting. And whenever we're making decisions, we're not just deciding, you know, what, what's best for Brandon, or what's best for us, or even what's best for Acts 2. We're saying, what is best for all of the people of God? And is this good news for me and just me, or is it good news for the poor as well? This actually comes up whenever Paul was, uh, was uh, having his conference with the, with the pillars of the church with James and John and Peter. And, uh, and so after they've affirmed his message, they've given him the right hand of fellowship, which, is, I mean, that's an interesting phrase. I don't, I don't know what the Greek says there, but, uh, but they've affirmed his mission and his calling. And they're like, yes, we are partners in this. And, and this is, they only asked him to do one other thing. This is what he says. They asked only one thing, that we remember the poor, which was actually what I was eager to do. And so as Paul traveled around, one of the things that he did was he took up a collection for people who were in need in Jerusalem. And the churches from all around the Mediterranean world that, that he went to and taught at, they would send back this offering so that the poor would have enough to eat, so the people would have food to eat. Because that's what Christ is concerned about. He's concerned about each of us, and he's particularly concerned about people who are poor, who are hungry, and who are left out. And here's one of the things, I think one of the biggest things we can take from Galatians 2 as we're reading this. I wish that people in the Jim Crow South would have read this more carefully, 150 however many years ago. But there's no separate but equal in the kingdom of God. It doesn't exist. It doesn't work that way. You can't have a table for some people over here and say, oh yeah, you have your table over here and that's fine and we're not going to get together, but it's equal. We're all brothers and sisters, just stay over there. It doesn't work that way. Whether it's Jews or Gentiles or people of different races, whether it's people of certain backgrounds or or socioeconomic class or whatever it is. Whenever Christ died for all of us, he welcomed us into a community that welcomes everyone where there is no differentiation of status of one from another. We all sit at the same table and everyone gets to eat. This is what Richard Hayes says uh, about that. He says, those who have been crucified with Christ will no longer separate themselves from, from one another but we'll gather around one table. And we get to experience that every time that we gather here as we share in communion. Because did you know that you don't have to be a member of Acts 2 for five years or longer to come to communion? Like, you don't. That's not a rule. You don't even have to be a member here at all. Did you know you don't have to earn a certain amount to be welcome here? Or even, you know, have have passed certain doctrinal tests? No, you have to be seeking Jesus. You have to want to come and then to come. And that's it. That's it. And there's one table. And you know what? If you ask me for more bread than somebody else got, I'm going to tell you no. Although it is hard to tear, and so sometimes I give more to some people, but it's not on purpose because everyone is welcome and every single person gets to eat. There is a seat for everyone who wants to come, and there is plenty of food for everyone because that's what the kingdom of God is like and that is the community that God created in Jesus Christ and welcomes each and every one of us into. And so all of those things that, that we rely upon to separate us, you know, whether that's, uh, whether that's our race, whether that's I'm an ultralight backpacker and they're just regular backpackers, whatever those things are, those divisions mean nothing. But each time we practice the breaking of bread here, we get to experience a taste of the heavenly banquet that God invites to all of us, all of us too and where everyone has a seat. And so for our action step this week, I want to invite you to practice that. And uh, And here it is. I want to challenge you to eat with someone you normally wouldn't eat with because we have a tendency to associate with people who are like us, right? The people that we hang out with are the people who, would like, who are like us. And usually that's not intentional, I don't think. I mean, it's not for me, but but those are the things that we end up falling into. Like I spend most of my time with church people because I, I'm a pastor and I work at a church you know, if you, if you are somebody who spends your free time at the yacht club, like, that kind of selects for a certain kind of person. And I mean, that's true with all the ways that, that we associate ourselves. So, so I wonder, you know, who is somebody you normally wouldn't eat with? You know, maybe it's somebody who, who you know, is, is further down on the org chart and normally you wouldn't come into contact with them. Maybe it's a neighbor who has different interests. Maybe it's, a, you know, somebody who has drastically different political opinions than you do. You know, once I was in a place where they were having a conference of Christian anarchists. They're like, did anyone know that was a thing? I had no idea that was a thing. And you know what? We might get to sit by them in heaven. They're going to be there too. Because Christ has created a place for all of us. And so this week, practice that. Embody that. Find someone you normally wouldn't share a meal with and eat with them. And, And whenever we do that, whenever we model that, whenever we cross boundaries and create the kind of community where everybody is welcome. As, as we discern God leading us to do that, the world changes. And the divisions that we place so much emphasis upon, the things that separate us, the things that tear people down, fade away, so that everyone might experience the love and unconditional acceptance that God has for each and every one of us. Will you pray with me? God, we are grateful for your son and that he invites each and every one of us to himself to follow him and that we are welcome no matter what and so God I pray that you help us to say yes to the life that he has for us and that we would say yes to the way of life that he teaches us help us God to seek you clearly to hear your voice to know who those people are who are wise and who you would lead us to whenever we need wisdom Help us to seek your voice in the scriptures and hear from the example of your son what he would have us to do. And God, help us to create the kind of world, the kind of church, the kind of homes and families where everyone is welcome and to live that out every day. We thank you that Jesus modeled that in his life, that he invites us as well. And we thank you that he taught us even how to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name.